We're here for the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for another history episode is the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine, Eric Mills. Hello, Eric. Hey, Ward. How have you been? It's been a long time. It's been a, a long time. It's always good to have you on the podcast. We have another great episode, a great article from the December issue happening today. Just Tell the audience, if you're watching us on YouTube, we're actually live. So this is another experiment we are attempting as we look to increase the reach of the podcast and our content in general. As we've mentioned before on the podcast, we're looking to grow our YouTube impact. Uh, We direct your attention to Eric's Battle of Midway episode that is actually doing pretty well metrics-wise, and uh, our good friend, Uh, Dennis Clift also has the Mulberries of D-Day. We have other stuff in the hopper. You'll see more and more history content, more and more history episodes on our YouTube channel. But another thing we're doing is, I mean, what's the word, Eric? We're we're live streaming. We're webcasting Mm -hmm. our YouTube, or I'm sorry, our Proceedings podcast episodes here on YouTube. And this is the first time that we're doing it coincident are also on YouTube live. Um, And so to that point, if you have a question during the the proceedings here, then go ahead and go in chat and and type in your question. We have our producer, Heather, who's the digital content manager here at the Naval Institute, is going to sort of curate the best of those questions and we'll fuse them into the conversation as we're going going along here. So this is a, a, a bold experiment, Eric. We're, yes, we're blazing uh, new trails today, Ward. Blazing new trails, as we always do here at the Naval Institute, and as is our heritage since 1873 and 1874 when Proceedings was first launched, as core members know. Um, so, meanwhile, Eric, what's happening in the world of Naval History Magazine that the people might want to know about? Well, the December issue is out now, and it's drawing a lot of attention. Of course, it's the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. There it is, folks, in all its glory. There you go. Um, Get yours today if you haven't gotten it yet. Um, Help us as we celebrate and commemorate the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, a signal event in 20th century history, right? Yeah, Um, I would say so, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Pretty much so. Uh, Pretty much changed everything in the history of the world that one Sunday morning, 1941. So that's in there. Uh, Meanwhile, um, stay tuned, everyone, for the upcoming issue in uh, January, February. It's going to be a barn burner, too. Uh, I'll leave you with that little teaser there. Um, The December issue also has some other great timely content, I should point out. Um, And this gets right to me talking about our guest. Is that premature or should I go ahead and do that, Ward? No, bring bring him him aboard. Okay, great. Well, we have... um, coverage of things besides just Pearl Harbor, people forget, you know, that was such a cataclysmic moment that we forget that it wasn't just a date which will live in infamy. It was actually a fortnight of infamy, really, because then the two weeks after Pearl Harbor, the uh, Japanese juggernaut just rolled into the South Pacific. Just nothing could stop it. And there's a very wonderful piece in this issue about the U.S. submarine force and its role in the defense of the Philippines and the fall of the Philippines. And what are the lessons learned from that? And we're really pleased to have Captain James Ransom, USN retired with us today to talk about his article about that bleak December of 1941. Jim, welcome aboard. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. So um, 
you, I love the way this article uh, repeatedly references what is a real classic of this topic, of course. I'm talking about Clay Blair's uh, silent victory, the um, submarine war, U.S. submarine war against Japan. Uh, this is on a lot of uh, our listeners' bookshelves, I'm sure. Um, and it provides a good template for looking at um, Admiral Thomas Hart and the Asiatic fleet and what they um, struggled to do, what they were unable to do. And I feel like this is a really timely topic for us now because it's very much about a region of the world that is um, possibly heating up again. Uh, I'm speaking of the Indo-Pacific. So I would invite you, um, Jim, to please just uh, tell us about your article. Maybe recount it for those who haven't read it. Sure. Um, I mean, this is a topic that I've been really fascinated with for a long time. And the, the Asiatic fleet that operated out of uh, the Far East, uh, initially out of uh, kind of the Shanghai and China area, and then out of uh, Manila in the Philippines, uh, was really just a, a speed bump in the end for the Japanese juggernaut. Uh, but it's something that uh, just has always spoke to me, the fact that, uh, you know, these guys were out there, they were uh, just outnumbered. There was a, a ton of uh, uh, Japanese uh, that were as part of their initial operations. And so they didn't really have much of a chance and not too much was expected. They were kind of expected to be able to hold off the Japanese until the Pacific fleet uh, made its way across uh, the Pacific. But uh, the results of Pearl Harbor really kind of set that whole thing back. Um, it was very clear within days, Hart, uh, Admiral Tommy Hart, who was the uh, sink of the Asiatic fleet, he was telling his staff that there was no way that, uh, that the Pacific fleet was going to be coming anytime soon. Um, and so the, the main striking force for his Asiatic fleet turned out to be uh, the submarines. And Tommy Hart was a submariner. He had, he had been one of the key submarine officers in the United States Navy uh, throughout the, the first half of the 20th century. And so he knew what they could do. He had very high expectations for them. And although he asked for a lot of uh, uh, reinforcements once he took command of the Asiatic fleet in uh, 1939, I mean, there weren't any battleships coming. Uh, there weren't really even any cruisers and destroyers coming. They, they made do with the surface fleet that they had, which was essentially uh, one heavy cruiser, the USS Houston, light cruiser, uh, USS Marblehead, very old ship, 13 World War I uh, flush deck four-pipe destroyers, uh, and they started out in the late 30s. There was only six uh, World War I vintage S-class submarines. And so those uh, boats, as hard asked for reinforcements, uh, the submarine forces is uh, where he turned when he realized he wasn't going to get uh, uh, much in the, in the way of new surface ships. And so by the time the war uh, started, uh, he basically had 29 submarines, uh, 23 of them, uh, the modern uh, fleet type boats, and then the uh, six older boats. And uh, those boats uh, were expected to be his primary striking force. And uh, turns out, I mean, the, the short story is they didn't live up to their billing. And there, there's a lot of reasons for that. And that's one of the things that all, always kind of fascinated me. What, what happened? What was the issue? And if you look at the the time frame at the end of the war, so let's say 1943, 44, 45, and then you look at uh, the start of the war, you know, there's a disconnect, right? 44, the submarine forces sweeping the seas, doing just tremendous stuff, and in 1941 and early 42, uh, ineffective. And so 
what happened? Why, why is it that that uh, occurred and what changed afterwards that uh, caused uh, the submarine force to improve? So, so kind of that's the, the, the gist of the article. It does go into the, the operations, a little bit into the operations of the submarines around the Philippines, uh, but it really only covers the, the first uh, three or four weeks of the war. And then it goes into looking at uh, some uh, analysis, one by uh, first by the uh, Asiatic Fleet's uh, submarine commander, uh, Captain John Wilkes, and next uh, by, uh, by Clay Blair in his book, Silent Victory. Uh, and so that's where I kind of weighed things out and talked about what I thought about uh, what those gentlemen had to say. Um, a lot of this speaks to a general theme of that early part of the Pacific War, doesn't it? That um, we seriously underestimated the Japanese. Their oh, training, right. the, the type of uh, warships we need to stand in their way. Uh, this bespeaks that quite a bit. Is there a lesson in there about readiness that still resonates, do you think, today? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, and, and it was very clear. Uh, John Wilkes uh, had uh, signed off on what was known as his action report uh, in uh, April and May of uh, 1942, which was written actually by, uh, by Captain Jimmy Fife, who was his chief of staff. Uh, Fife basically locked himself away for a month uh, in Fremantle, Australia, after the campaign was over, and he wrote that uh, uh, that document, and and Wilkes essentially signed it. Um, but uh, but in that document, it was very clear uh, to Wilkes and Fife that uh, they had seriously underrated, uh, underestimated the Japanese. I mean, they they really were. Uh, they but they had no idea that uh, they were going to be as good at anti-submarine warfare as they were. Uh, in fact, uh, the Japanese, uh, it, it seemed to, to the Americans that they were so good that they actually thought that they had radar on their on their destroyers because at nighttime they were picking up the Americans, uh, the American submarines on the surface as they tried to penetrate Lingayen Gulf to, to take on the Japanese invasion convoy uh, in the northwest uh, corner of the Philippines. And so they thought they had radar on them, which wasn't the case. They were just very good at night fighting, was, as, as we found out later in the Guadalcanal and Solomon's campaign. Uh, but there was that issue. Uh, the Americans were surprised that the Japanese destroyers had sonar. Uh, they were going active and pinging on them, and they had no idea that that was the case. So there, there's an intelligence issue there. Uh, there's also, a, you know, it has been said that there was elements of racism uh, involved in this, that the Japanese, you know, of course, they can't be as good of us as us. You know, we're 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 Westerners. Uh, so, um, yeah, very much uh, an underestimation of the enemy, and, and you know that that is something we've got to be careful for today. Well, that charge of racism was leveled at Admiral Kimmel as well in terms of his assessment of the threat before December seventh. Um, so that's that is a definitely a lesson that we should remember because some could say we attributed those same lack of skills to the asymmetric threat that was Al-Qaeda, you know, and, and that led to 9-11. Yeah. So certainly that's something that we can be guilty of. So on page 29, there's a photo here of some some guys. Who's in this photo and, and, and what was the story behind these principles? So so that picture, actually, the, the main guy that we want to talk about was uh, John Wilkes, who's the gentleman on the right in the picture. Uh, and that's taken in 1944 when he was a flag officer. He was a uh, two-star at the time. 
and he was actually shifted over to, to Europe. So he was in charge of training uh, all the amphibious forces for the D-Day operations. Uh, the two other guys, uh, one I think is John L. Hall in the middle, uh, Rear Admiral, and the other one is uh, Admiral Allen Kirk. And both of those guys were, were also involved with uh, the D-Day picture. But, but Wilkes is the key guy. I mean, he was the commander of submarines for the U.S. Asiatic Fleet, started out the war as a commander, uh, and then obviously got promoted very quickly uh, as promotion started speeding up as more and more people came in and more and more responsibilities were needed. I think it was 1 January 1942, he was promoted to captain. Uh, and then he was the guy who was in charge of all the Asiatic fleet submarines from the shore side, essentially the Commodore, if you want to look at it that way, Commodore of a squadron, uh, until May 1942 when he was uh, relieved by uh, Admiral Charles Lockwood, who later went on to run the the whole show in the Pacific uh, submarine force for the entire war. Well, we talk about readiness and preparedness in terms of um, what are their capabilities and what do we need to stop them. But um, there's also some logistical unpreparedness in this. Uh, why don't you tell us about what you describe as uh, Admiral Hart's most egregious error? So, so the way I looked at it, and this is obviously one man's opinion and others uh, certainly might disagree with me, um, but uh, Hart did not deploy his submarines, even though by November he was convinced that war was imminent. And he had had discussions with uh, General MacArthur. And while MacArthur kept saying, I think this is going to be a, an April 1942 type thing, uh, Hart was very convinced that we were, you know, days or weeks away from war. And so with that, my question is, well, why didn't we deploy more of those 29 American submarines in advance of December 7th, December 8th, uh, on the, across the international dateline in Manila? Uh, essentially, when the, the, the day that the war started, there was only two submarines underway. There was an old S-boat, the S-36, that was sent to Lingayen Gulf on the 3rd of December, uh, and there was a second S-boat, S-39, that was uh, deployed to, to Sorsagon Bay to kind of oversee the, the San Bernardino Strait uh, area in case the Japanese might come from that, that side. So two of 29 submarines were underway. Uh, he had gotten, uh, Wilkes had gotten other boats underway. Uh, early in December, he sent four of the new uh, fleet boats uh, to the east of the Philippines to try to rendezvous with the Boise convoy. The uh, light cruiser Boise was coming in with a couple of uh, ships uh, to Manila. And uh, so they sent four submarines out there. They didn't meet up. Uh, Wilkes then told them, well, instead of coming straight back, why don't you make a swing around the northern part of the Philippines of uh, Luzon and then come back down the, the west coast to Manila that way. And partly he did that because those four boats were newly arrived. They'd only been in the Philippines for a couple of weeks. They came from Hawaii and he wanted to get them familiar uh, with the area, but he also wanted to get them you know, familiar with operating. So he did that. Uh, the other thing that he did uh, is uh, because Admiral Hart uh, essentially sent all, almost all of his surface ships south from the Philippines. He sent them either to the Dutch East Indies or to southern Philippine ports in late November uh, and early December, there wasn't any surface escorts to do any escorting around, around the Philippines as we got into December. 
And so uh, at the very end of November, uh, we were trying, the, the United States was trying to evacuate the 4th Marine Regiment from Shanghai. Uh, and these were the, 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 the China Marines that had been there forever. A very tough uh, veteran outfit, uh, but they're sitting over there in Shanghai. And so uh, everybody wanted to get them out of there, bring them back to the Philippines. Uh, so they sent two transports over there, but they didn't have any destroyers to go with them. So they actually sent two submarines with the, those transports as escorts. Not a not really a, a, a submarine mission of escorting uh, surface ships around. Um, on the way, the submarines were operating out in the South China Sea off of Shanghai. And uh, one of them, which if I remember correctly, was the Perch. Uh, no, it was Permit. I'm sorry. It was Permit. Uh, actually took a wave down the hatch, uh, shorted out some of their equipment, and lost propulsion in, in, uh, in uh, the stormy weather. And so she was bobbing around out there uh, with, uh, with no propulsion and was sighted by Japanese destroyers. And these Japanese destroyers were circling around the ship, essentially, you know, curious, what, what's this all about? Who is that? What are they doing out there? Uh, and nothing happened. You know, they, they took a look and they left, right? And so uh, Permit got herself fixed, met up with the, tr uh, the transports with the 4th Marines and headed back to the Philippines after that. But my point out of that is it has been said that perhaps Hart didn't deploy his submarines early because he was concerned that he was tasked with providing a defensive uh, deployment of ships and not to start a conflict, uh, not to go out and, and, and look like we're doing offensive operations or put uh, the United States in a position where perhaps a mistake would happen and somebody takes a shot, next thing you know, we, we get accused of starting the war. So these two incidents, particularly that last one with the uh, escorting the transports, that indicates to me, hey, we could have done that. We, he could have sent his boats out to sea, uh, given them orders, hey, don't get detected if you can, if, you know, obviously don't antagonize, uh, but report back, uh, but he didn't do it. Uh, and so to me, that's what I think is his most egregious error is the failure to, to get those submarines out uh, mm -hmm. last week in November and the first week of December. It would have helped them out with uh, familiarizing themselves with the area, with operations, uh, and there's a good chance that they could have seen something and reported earlier uh, on what they were seeing so that uh, might have given us an, an operational advantage. Well, this to me, I, it begs me to ask you to play the what-if game. A counterfactual, what would it be what if he had gotten them out of there in late November, early December? How would this all have unfolded differently? The yeah. Japanese tide rolling over the South Pacific. Sure, it's a great question, uh, and and counterfactuals are fun, right? We just we love those uh, because you you can't be wrong. So uh, I don't think it would have made a significant difference. Uh, based on the, the torpedo problem, right? Obviously the problem with the US torpedoes, submarine torpedoes, the Mark 14s uh, was so egregious and, and, and uh, was uh, of, of such uh, a, a huge issue that I just don't think in the end it would have made, uh, would have stopped the Japanese invasion, forced them to, you know, to, to rethink their strategy. I think there's a good chance that we could have had a better idea of what was going on, maybe reposition some assets, maybe be ready for some things, perhaps, um, 
you know, we would have had some advanced notification to the point where uh, we wouldn't have lost the Far East Air Force or most of the Far East Air Force on at Clark Airfield and EBA and all those other airfields in the Philippines, losing half of our B-17s and almost all of our pursuit aircraft. And, and had that happened, uh, the submarines would have had more queuing. You know, they could have retained some air power. We would have been able to use that for queuing to uh, send the submarines where they needed to go. So the torpedoes, the bad torpedoes, certainly is a huge issue. Uh, and, and I think precludes me from saying, you know, had had he deployed them, it would have worked out just fine. We, we would have won the day. I don't think that would happen, but I think things would have been better. Might have stalled them a little bit at least. Yeah. Um, so speaking of the torpedo performance issue, there are basically two different um, lists in towards the end of the article. One comes under the header of lessons, but little critical self-assessment, which is uh, a summation of the commander of submarine Asiatic fleets findings, which includes finding number two in this list of four is torpedo performance. So what were the other takeaways that I'm imagining we call that acronym CSAF. I'm, I'm making that up. Uh, no, that's what I would do. Yeah. Is that what it is? Look at me with my guesses. <laughs> um, and then we'll talk about Blair's eight major errors, which is the other bulletized list of takeaways. Yeah. So, um, so Wilkes's report, and this is, if I can get it in the picture, that's it right there. Okay. And I got this from the National Archives. Uh, it, of course, it didn't have all these cute little spiral thingies. I did that myself. But this is a 72-page report that, uh, that Jimmy Fife wrote and Wilkes put out there. Um, and, and, you know, when I looked at uh, the, what I saw in, in his report, and it's, it's very comprehensive and fascinating, and I, it, I, I recommend anybody who has an interest in the submarine force in those first, uh, first few months of the war Boy, find a copy of that thing and, and read it because it's just it's just a fascinating document. Really well done, written by Jimmy Fife, essentially without his notes. And some have said, well, okay, how good can it be if it, you know he wrote it five months later without notes? It's pretty darn good. He did it. They did a really good job. Um, but uh, the issues that that Wilkes uh, put in this thing that that I focused on, and obviously it's a short article, part of a big larger project that I'm working on, so I couldn't couldn't go into too much detail. But the first point is, hey, we did underestimate the Japanese, and, and we talked about that already. The second point was the torpedoes. Wilkes, uh, by the end of December, was receiving reports of erratic torpedoes, uh, premature detonations, uh, and a lot of missed shots from the, from the boats who co were coming back from their initial war patrols and saying, hey, I was lined up perfectly and took multiple shots, and I wasn't getting any hits, and I don't know how I could have missed. Uh, so by by the first week in January, he was pretty sure there was a problem out there with the Mark 14s. Uh, and actually, you know, one skipper, uh, the uh, the CO of the USS Sargo, a uh, guy by the name of uh, Lieutenant Commander Tyrrell Jacobs, uh, who I consider this guy one of the one of the savviest people out there, and it's very unfortunate because he basically lost his command because he was so frustrated with the torpedoes uh, and a couple other things that happened that that he kind of left the submarine force at that point, went on to do other things and could have done great things because he he was an ordnance guy. He had suspected there was a lot of problems with the torpedo. He determined, hey, I think these torpedoes are running deep. 
And he also determined, I don't, I think there's a problem with this Mark VI magnetic exploder, the influence exploder, and I don't think it's working properly. So he actually deactivated it, which he was, he was, he was right on. I mean, there was a problem with the Mark VI magnetic exploder. They were, the torpedoes were running deep. Uh, so, so by, by the 1st of January, the word was, I mean, the idea that there was these two problems was actually kicking around and Wilkes to his credit, sent off a, 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 a cable or a, a, a message to the, uh, to the Bureau of Ordnance. He sent it to the Navy Department uh, to get to the Bureau of Ordnance, saying, I think I've got problems. I think they're running deep, and I think there's some issue with the magnetic exploder. And they came back, Bureau of Ordnance, after looking at it for however long they looked at it, came back and said, you know what? The premature detonations, we think that's within uh, the error of what, what should be expected for getting premature detonations from submarines. And... Uh, as far as running deep, yeah, we think they're running deep, but only for the first thousand yards, and then they come back up, and so we don't think that's too much of a problem. And we think the main problem is your skippers aren't shooting straight, uh, so threw it right back on the skippers. Uh, so, so that was the second big issue, and and really that's the elephant in the room is is the the torpedo performance. And there was a couple other things that Wilkes talked about as well. One was he did mention, hey, the lack of uh, lack of aerial reconnaissance, you know, the impact that having those, um, you know, the, the, the Pat Wing 10 and their PBY Catalinas were, were primarily gone. The B-17s were gone. We didn't have control of the air. And so we weren't getting any queuing for the submarine. So we pointed that out. He also pointed out uh, some problems with uh, things like, you know, our boats kept getting detected at night. So he, he realized that the silhouettes of the, uh, of the fleet boats in particular were too they were, they stood out too much and at, at night they could be seen. And so he said, Hey, we need to cut those things back. And there was a couple other things there, but uh, really had a pretty good list of items. I guess the last one that was of importance is he looked at it and said, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to defend uh, the shores by having the boats in closer to shore. We really should be putting them out in the middle of the, of the South China sea and along the transit lanes uh, to be able to, to detect the, the the Japanese shipping and their escorts there, because once once they get the, the Japanese reach near their endpoint and the water gets shallow, it suddenly becomes a heck of a lot harder for the submarines to do anything about it. So those were Wilkes's big things, and then the next one we can go into whenever you're ready is uh, his old uh, Clay Blair and his eight major errors. Before we get to Clay Blair, it's just interesting how the dynamic between fleet operators and let's just call them the systems command engineers. It reminds me of some of the interfaces I had with, you know, the, the F-14 program office and they'd come back and go, no, no, that thing's fine. It's your, your fault. You guys aren't using it right. You know, so there's sort of historical precedent and, and then it's applied history. There's like solace that what we dealt with during my career and what they're dealing with now with respect to the interface with the systems command. This is like the heritage of that <laughs> dynamic, right? So yeah. it's like they always had that step to throw in there to keep, you know, stall you off for one more round of questions and answers. Here. Yeah. But I mean, the war is going on. These are, yes. these are not just like theoretical, Hey, if the Russians do come over the Hill, we kind of want to fix this. This is like, we're using this weapon. Now it's not working. And they're like, well, you're do better. Yeah, shoot straight. Or we think it's fine. So what's, you know, keep going. You know, we're, we're with you all the way. You know, it, it's kind of, I, I can just imagine the reception in in the submarine when they got that message back. 
Uh, you know, I'm sure their heads were exploding and they were very frustrated with that answer. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to, to its credit, the submarine force and, you know, we didn't say this, but I'm a, I was a 30 year submarine officer uh, and uh, I shot more torpedoes uh, than I can even remember. Uh, and, and it was all about making sure that that doggone weapon, which is the most important thing that we had to do, making sure that works. And, and to submarine forces credit, you know, they they knew they would never, ever go to sea with a faulty weapon like that again, ever. And so it's so important to this day, uh, we spend so much time making sure that that never happens again because it was so egregious and we lost crews and we lost submarines uh, because of this torpedo problem. So we talked about Blair's, or we've teased out the idea we're going to talk about Blair's eight major errors. So let's tell the listeners who Clay Blair Jr. is and what was the time frame between CSAF's findings and his teeing up these eight major errors? And what is this book, Silent Victory, as well? Yeah. So you, you mentioned that Silent Victory is something that you know, a lot of people have on their uh, on their desk. I got I got my copy, right? I got my copy of Silent Victory. It's kind of a kind of a doorstop, but this is. And I've recently had a good discussion with uh, John uh, Partial about uh, the idea of uh, definitive accounts, right? So, so this has been called the definitive count account of the U.S. submarine force in World War II, and it was written in 1975. So we're going on, we're coming up on 50 years since that book was written, uh, and there's been nothing really like it since. Uh, the only one that existed before that was this other guy. This is uh, Roscoe's book, Submarine Operations in World War II, another big doorstop. That was published in 49 by the Naval Institute. Um, and, and those two are kind of it. There's a few others, but those are, are your major uh, submarine operations in World War II Bibles, if you want to call it that. And so Blair uh, was a submariner in World War II. He served as a, and I can't remember, an electrician or I don't remember exactly what he what he did. Uh, but he's a petty officer on uh, on the USS Guardfish, made a handful of war patrols, and then went on to a career in journalism after the war. Uh, and he's written a ton of books. He wrote about uh, Ridgeways, paratroopers, and the uh, U-boat war. Uh, but Silent Victor was the one that he was writing all throughout the 60s and early 70s, interviewing all these uh, submariners, which to me is invaluable because we, we just don't have those guys around to talk to anymore, which is just such a shame and, and a very sad thing. Uh, but Blair, uh, you know, having been involved uh, in the war, been depth charged, been in attacks, he was very critical of, uh, of, you know, what happened with the Asiatic fleet early in the war. So he did come up with eight things that he thought were problems, uh, and I'll kind of run through and list them. The first one was was faulty peacetime training. Uh, he felt that, uh, you know, we weren't doing realistic training with the submarine force. Uh, he felt that uh, we spent too much uh, concern about airborne contacts. And so essentially uh, they were training to shoot uh, their torpedoes from deep using sonar information only. And, you know, that's hard, that's hard to do today. Uh, it's difficult enough to do that today in 1941, 42, that was really tough. And so, you know, 
there was a lot of emphasis placed on shooting from deep, not from periscope depth, looking, getting visual uh, bearings on things and not on the surface at necessarily at night. And it turns out that was probably a bad thing. It also uh, forced the boats to spend a lot of time deep, in particular during the day. They were so concerned about the aviation threat and being detected uh, from the air that, uh, you know, the boats would be early in this, uh, in the conflict, the boats were diving in a half an hour before sunrise and they would submerge uh, shortly after sunset. And so they were, they were submerged all day, not, you know, not having the benefit of uh, being up there and, and getting those high looks and seeing what's at what, what shipping's out there uh, and just uh, relying on their sonar detection, which wasn't all that great. So, so I think that there's probably some truth to that faulty peacetime uh, training. Uh, Blair said his second one was uh, poor upkeep and maintenance, which I think is valid. Uh, they were in the Philippines. I mean, there wasn't a U.S. naval shipyard anywhere nearby. So you've got these ships, some of them, and submarines that have been out there for, for decades, the old S-boats, uh, and, and the ability to conduct maintenance is significantly more difficult uh, when you're at the pointy end of the spear, all the way, uh, you know, way far away from this long logistics tail going back to the to the states. So it's a valid point, but I don't think much could have been done about it. And Jimmy Fife, uh, in an interview that he gave, he said, hey, it, it, it had always been that way. Uh, those boats were rowed hard. Uh, we were more concerned about operations than maintenance, but I don't think that anything could happen with that. Um, his third point was he thought it was a bad idea that we had based the submarines to operate out of Manila in the Philippines. Uh, and and th th that could be a point. I mean, it was going to be a focal point for the Japanese. And we saw them do their, their plane attacks uh, on Clark Air Base uh, at Cavite Navy Yard and other places. Uh, but Blair said, well, we should have, you know, set up a base in Taui Taui, which is way, way to the south, over 500 miles uh, south. Uh, and uh, and unprotected, no air no air bases nearby for protection, uh, and uh, it would have been really far from the main point that we were concerned about, which was defending Lingayen Gulf. The both the army and the navy, uh, even before the war started, and for decades, in fact, had pretty much decided the Japanese, when they invaded the Philippines, they were going to land at Lingayen Gulf on the northwest corner of Luzon which is exactly what they did. So if uh, we were basing our, our submarines out of Taui Taui, you know, it would have taken forever to get them up there, particularly because they're driving around submerged all day uh, and they can only do three or four knots. Uh, so it would have taken them forever. So I don't, I'm not sure that that was uh, 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 as important as, uh, as Blair thought. Um, we already talked about the failure to deploy before the commencement of uh, hostilities and how I feel about it. And I'd be really happy to hear what others think about it. I, when I presented this uh, paper uh, at the uh, McMullen Naval History Symposium two years ago, I had a very esteemed uh, panel uh, moderator by the name of Craig Simons, who told me that uh, he thought there was a good reason why, why that Hart didn't uh, deploy his submarines. And you know, that's what we talked about here. So I, I he disagrees with me and, and I, I maybe foolishly disagree with him. <laughs> um, the, uh, the other things that uh, Blair put in, one is that the, the boats got very weak instructions for war. 
uh, as they were all, you know, the they got the word of the attack on Pearl Harbor on the 8th of December. That day, they had boats lined up, getting their orders, getting their provisions, getting any torpedoes they needed, and then send them all out. And uh, the skippers were getting told, they get written and verbal orders. And a lot of the verbal orders that they were receiving from division commanders uh, and uh, and the squadron commander was, hey, these, you know, all we have is submarines. The service ships are all to the south, so we can't afford to lose them. So the boats are very valuable. So let's, in fact, a verbatim quote is, don't try to go out there and, and earn the Congressional Medal of Honor. The submarines are more important than anything else. Bring your crews back. Well, I understand the sentiment, but if you're trying to get your guys to go out there and uh, defend something in very perilous times and and uh, attack, that's not what you want to tell them. And so I've always, you know, wondered as we hear about you know cautious skippers and skippers that that weren't uh, being aggressive, uh, you know, were they were they hearing those words in the back of their head? You know, submarines are more important than anything else. Bring them back. Um, so I think that I think there's a good point there. Uh, the failure to defend Lingayen Gulf, I think, is a, another error that uh, Blair talked about. That would be number six. Uh, we had one submarine stationed in Lingayen Gulf before the war started. I mentioned that earlier. That was S-36, an old S-boat. She was actually withdrawn on the 16th of December because Wilkes lost communications with her. Kept sending message messages to S-36 and getting no response. So he finally sent one saying, hey, come on back. Um, and so they, they had a faulty transmitter was the problem. So they came back. Uh, and, and by the time the Japanese invasion convoy arrived off Lingayen Gulf on the 21st, there was really only one or two submarines in the vicinity of Lingayen Gulf. Uh, so that's a problem. And once Wilkes got word that the Japanese invasion convoy was on its way into Lingayen Gulf, he sent six, six or seven boats racing towards that area. Um, but also, uh, that battle lasted for several days. Uh, he kept trying to send boats in, pull the ones out that, that were trying to get in and weren't getting in because the Japanese anti-submarine uh, uh, performance was so good. Uh, but there was lots of submarines that were transiting back and forth. There were submarines transiting, returning from uh, patrol stations off of China, off of Hainan Island, off of Formosa. Uh, there was guys heading out to stations, and a, a lot of those guys had all their torpedoes. So he could have vectored them in there, but did not. So I, I think that's a, a very valid point that Blair has as well. Um, Blair Blair's seventh uh, major error was uh, unnecessary loss of equipment and men. He uh, he really took the Navy to task for losing all these torpedoes that they had stored at Cavite that went up uh, in the Japanese raid on the 10th of December when they uh, they bombed Kabidi Navy Yard to, into ashes. So we lost 233 torpedoes there, and he, he thought that was bad. We should have done better. Okay, I mean, maybe, uh, I mean, we, did, we didn't think that was going to happen, and we had already started moving torpedoes into Corregidor, into the, into the uh, tunnels in Corregidor. So that was probably going to happen anyway. He also took uh, uh, the Navy to task, uh, and this is Hart, essentially, took Admiral Hart to task for not sending uh, USS Canopus, which was the uh, submarine tender that was tasked to remain in Manila Bay. Uh, he said you should have just sent him away. 
Uh, and this probably goes back to his idea about uh, why are we basing the submarines in Manila? Um, but uh, Canopus eventually had to be scuttled, uh, but she performed fantastic service uh, during the month that the submarines were operating out of Manila in December, uh, and also performed fantastic service until she was scuttled uh, prior to the loss of Bataan, uh, and that was in April of 42. Uh, Hart agonized over this, and the, the issue was, should he have sent her south with everything that she had, these, these uh, great... Uh, submarine repair people, um, all the, the spare parts that she had. And his concern was, if I do that, I may lose this ship. The Japanese are everywhere. They're operating, they were operating in, in the Southern Philippines. And so you've got this, you know, 30 year old tender that could probably do about 12 knots. You know, what if they, what if they cite it? And the next thing you know, we lose it at sea, we're going to lose everybody. So I can't fault him uh, too badly for his idea of, of leaving her there recognizing that eventually, you know, if you can't get the crew out, you're going to lose them. And that's one of the things he, he, to his dying day, Tommy Hart regretted that uh, he lost the crew of Canopus. A lot of those guys ended up on the Bataan death march uh, and, and we lost a lot of them. And then the last issue that Blair talked about was it's related to the, to the Mark 14 torpedo problem, but he phrased it really strangely. He said, he said that the failure to take immediate action to make a live test of the Mark 14 torpedo in Manila Bay was a problem that should have been fixed. And you know what? You know, John Wilkes and his uh, CSAF staff were operating ashore during that entire month of December. They weren't on the tender. They were operating ashore, split into two groups because uh, Manila was getting bombed every day. And they, they so they wanted to have Wilkes lead one group, Fife lead another group, and then an operations officer in each, materiel officers in each, in case you know one group got hit by a uh, by a bomb and and we lost them all. He didn't want to lose his entire staff, so he's dodging bombs in Manila daily, diving into slit trenches uh, in the afternoon every day as the bombs come raining down. How's he supposed to make a you know a live test of a Mark 14 torpedo in Manila Bay in December with all this going on? So so I I, I don't buy that one. But as I said in the paper, you know, if he had just said, hey, the, the fact that, you know, the, the Bureau of Ordnance and the, and the U.S. Navy screwed up the uh, development of the Mark 14 torpedo and had they got that right and tested it properly uh, before it was issued out to the submarines, then I would have said right on. Absolutely. That's a huge thing. So those are Blair's eight major errors of which... I really agree with four of them. Four of them, I think, maybe, I mean, while there's some validity, they're of lesser significance. Well, I'll, I'll add that I went aboard the USS Canopus in Scotland as a 12-year-old Boy Scout at uh, Canoe Camp. Overlock. Yes, exactly. So that was 1972, still in service. So. Yeah, that, well, that was her, her uh, um, uh, successor. Ship. Oh, it wasn't the original Canopus. No, okay. Canopus was sunk. She, she uh, was scuttled in 42. Okay, so then belay my last. So, Eric, we have a, uh, a question from a viewer, which uh, we're very happy. Again, we'll remind the viewers that we're up live in this episode. So if you have a question, just drop it into the chat, and we'll try to fuse it in the conversation. Yeah, Go ahead, Eric. Send them all in. Yeah, uh, this actually relates to the Mark 14 issue. Um, Adam Beal asks, is it true that we had a limited number of torpedoes in our arsenal at the start of the war, which could have contributed to the reluctance to test and debug the Mark 14 problems? 
So it's true that for, for going to war, we didn't have as many as we should have had, as many as we needed. We had enough to outfit all the ships initially going out on patrol, and we had reloads for them. Uh, but, you know, if you're talking about uh, 29 submarines stationed in the Philippines, you know, there's not going to be a whole lot of more torpedoes coming out there after December 8th, right? I mean, there's there's really nobody getting through with, with uh, replacement torpedoes. And then the fact that we lost 233 of them uh, at the bombing of Cavite, that certainly stressed the system as well. So, so we were, um, and Wilkes puts it in his action report. He says, hey, we're conserving torpedoes. Uh, you know, we're trying to tell the boats, don't, don't fire, go off and fire a spread of six torpedoes unless you need to, unless some aircraft carrier comes into your site. You know, we're going to have to be judicious with our use of them. So yes, there was a, uh, a shortage of torpedoes, obviously made worse after uh, the attack on Cavite. But did that affect the, the inability to do testing? I, I don't think so. I mean, that, to me, that's, that's crazy. You, still, you, don't, you don't send all the torpedoes out and then say, well, we'd love to do testing now, but we don't have enough because they're all out in the fleet. I mean, you do the testing in, you know, in the late 30s and the early 40s uh, to find out what's going on with it. And, and the issue is, you know, they just didn't do a whole lot of live tests on that thing. It was all done with uh, with exercise weapons and exercise warheads. And, you know, so they didn't know that uh, it was, you know, the difference between the weight uh, of the of the warhead and the weight of, of it without a warhead resulted in, in uh, the, the, the things uh, driving deeper as well as some of the other issues that turned up. That's a great question. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, Jim, this is um, this reflects a larger um, project you're working on about the Asiatic fleet in the early phase of the war, correct? You want to uh, maybe wrap things up by telling us about what you're working on? Yeah, so it, it, the project is about Asiatic fleet submarines. So, um, you know, I've got on my uh, bookcase here behind me, I, I've got probably a good, you know, half dozen, dozen books that talk about uh, the Asiatic fleet from... Uh, you know, Hornfisher's Ship of Ghosts about uh, the USS Houston. Uh, there's one recently by uh, Kane called In the Highest Degree Tragic. Uh, there's just, there's a lot of books that have written, even, even recently have been written about the U.S. Asiatic fleet. And as I read through them all, I'm looking at them saying, hey, there's not much in here about submarines. You really don't talk about them much. And when you see some of those, you read it and it says essentially, well, the submarines had they had bad torpedoes and their, their skippers weren't aggressive and they didn't do much. So they weren't really a factor. Okay. I, I would, I would go with that. Uh, although I, I take a little bit of uh, issue with the whole idea of that's all there was. That was a problem is torpedoes and cautious skippers, particularly the cautious skipper uh, point. Um, but uh, because of that, and because, you know, serving as a, as a submariner, I served as the operations officer out at Comsub Group 7 in Yokosuka, Japan in, in the, in the uh, early 90s. And so I was routing submarines around those same waters that the Asiatic fleet served in, you know, around the Philippines, around the Dutch East Indies. Uh, we went further than that. There was other places too, but uh, uh, I was very aware at the time kind of the heritage that I, that I held in being an operations officer for a follow-on to Commander Submarines Asiatic Fleet. Uh, and then, you know, I served on uh, a 688 class submarine, uh, first and finest, USS Los Angeles, operating in, in Westpac for a while. So I've, I've served there. And then I, I worked on the uh, Com Subpac staff uh, near the end of my career, um, 
thinking about what was going on in the Western Pacific and, and how we were going to support uh, the Western Pacific. And so it's, it's very, it's, I don't know, the story got inside me. That's about what I can say is, is I can't get it out. I have to, I have to write the doggone thing because I think it's an important story to tell uh, what happened in those first four months, uh, the failures, uh, the, the things that we went through. I mean, those submariners wanted to do so well and they thought they were going to do so well. They knew that a lot was on their shoulders and those guys got underway uh, with the best of intentions and thinking that things were going to go well. And imagine the frustration as, you know, they're missing perfectly set up shots. What's going on with my torpedoes? Um, the Japanese are everywhere, which, you know, and, and performing extremely well, which is such a huge part of this whole thing um, that, you know, the, it just doesn't turn out. It's not a good news story. And sometimes people don't like to, they don't like to read the, the unhappy stories. They want to hear about the victories, but uh, that's the larger project uh, that uh, now that uh, I'm, I understand the national archives is back open again. So uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to get up there and, and finish my research. Uh, I have spent time with uh, Clay Blair's papers out in uh, Laramie, Wyoming. If anybody ever is interested in, and uh, sitting down with his uh, boxes of stuff. It's in at the University of Wyoming. I was there this past summer. Uh, but uh, if I can do the National Archives, I'll have what I need. And then it's uh, right, right, right. Uh, good luck. So the article is Bleak December. It's in the December issue of Naval History Magazine. Our guest has been Captain Jim Ransom. Jim, thanks for the time. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Great to speak with you, Jim. All right. That'll do it. For this episode of the Proceedings Podcast, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. This episode, as every episode, is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. For more, go to usni.org slash join. All right, Eric, we'll see you again very soon, I think. Happy trails, Ward. We'll see you then. <laughs>